Alright, so this is episode four of Unabashed Gaming. That's right. My name is David Schimpf. And I'm David Larkins. And welcome to all our new listeners. Uh, thanks to Zach Smith on Google Plus for promoting the podcast. Uh, we've picked up quite a few subscribers since our last post. You are a classy gentleman. Mm, you are indeed. And you listeners are of unsurpassed taste and uh, uh, great um, discernment. Yes, you're more than welcome to continue listening to us as we keep complimenting you over the course of the next few shows. Absolutely. Uh, we will start charging eventually, though. Yes. But you're used to that. Yes, exactly. The first compliment's free. <laughs> All right, well, this week we are talking about how to create balance in games that don't lend themselves to balance very well, as well as uh, how to find players, or maybe even how to find a GM in your area to play a game. Indeed. And we have our first voicemail question, so we'll be getting to that at the end of the session. That's right. Uh, first of all, though, I just wanted to mention that we have been scooped with our D12 dice pool system. This is agonizing. It really is. I, I, I really thought of all the possible mechanical concepts one could come up with, uh, D12 dice pool is pretty much a safe bet. But no, um, Raphael Chandler has put out a game through uh, Lulu, the self-publishing uh, website called Pandemonio. Hmm. And actually, this may well be an old idea. My understanding is this is a combination of two other shorter games that he's published over the last 10 years, um, both of which have Pandemonio in the title, although I cannot remember their full names. Huh. Pandemonio is all you need to know right now. Um, here's the, uh, the blurb. You're a disciple, a supernatural warrior on the front lines, wielding bizarre magics like sexpletive, death panel, photobomb, and gunfetti, you must hunt down murderous angels and sadistic demons. Interesting. Yes. I... Wow. That <laughs> is that is all kinds of mouthfuls of words right there. It sure is. And um, I'm just happy that if someone you know, took our D12 dice pool system and ran with it, it was at least for a good cause. That's right. So, Raphael Chandler, is nothing sacred to you? <laughs> We salute you. <laughs> Actually, nothing is sacred to him. I, I do have one of his other publications called The Tyrannic Tome, and oh. it's a uh, monster manual for like old school D and D systems. Mm. Uh, it's like basically, <clears throat> if you feel like your D and D games don't have enough Clive Barker in them, then that's the book for you. Lovely. So, yeah. He's... Okay, so ignore my first question, but we still salute you. That's right. I guess that covers the first little bit of local news, so I guess uh, should we just jump into creating balance and balanceless games? I think so. All right. Um, well, when I first started thinking about the situation, I considered, um, you know, we discussed earlier about game systems like basic role-playing, which don't really lend themselves very much to balance, at least in um, the same sense that Dungeons & Dragons would say. You're facing a lot of stuff that... In essence, you don't necessarily have all the tools to deal with. And so that's kind of an example of creating difficulty balance in a game that doesn't really lend itself to difficulty balance. But there's also the concept of balancing enjoyment for the players and sort of catering to exactly what they're trying to get out of the game themselves. Mm. And <clears throat> personally, I think that, uh, that dealing with player enjoyment takes a lot more footwork with a GM than creating some sort of difficulty balance because really with difficulty you're just managing numbers or futzing rolls behind the table but in order to create enjoyment with characters or players you really have to dig deep and cater to their needs and listen to them and you know who wants to listen to their players except when they're screaming in agony when their characters are dying Not honestly sure. yeah so <laughs> But it is a it is a really great feeling when uh, at the end of a session, you know, your players come up to you and they say, that was a really great game. We really enjoyed ourselves, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's even better when you when you know they're not just being polite. <laughs> That's right. When the when the, the game isn't set up to necessarily guarantee that everyone has a good time, quote unquote. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I mean... The, the concept of, of balance in a game uh, is definitely a more uh, recent concept, I think. I, I think with pretty much any old uh, system, um, there's not a lot of 
concern about balance. Right. And it puts it into the GM's hands, like you say. And I think the concept of a balanced system came out of, <laughs> you know, groups where the GM couldn't deliver, to be honest, you know, or people who were concerned that, you know, well, I, I want protection from a GM who's going to just go after me, you know. Exactly. Um, and so it's sort of become the de facto nowadays, especially like from third edition D&D onwards, you know, yeah. uh, this idea that, that the game is there to sort of A, guarantee everyone has a good time, and B, protect the players from the GM to the point where, you know, some might argue like fourth edition D&D completely takes uh, autonomy out of the GM's hands entirely. Exactly. You know. <clears throat> Um, so that's to me the appeal of, of the old school systems, um, and that includes like things like making you know open dice rolls, you know, because it's like if you're not trying to like balance things, literally balance things, then you're just gonna let the dice fall where they may, you know. Exactly. Um, and then that's part of the fun, the experience of, you know, <clears throat> maybe never, you know, something not going the way that people would have. Uh, would have thought it should go narratively yeah exactly yeah. so what would you say for um for then creating balance and difficulty since that's the easier one to to modify mm-hmm. we've uh, we've talked already about uh well we you just mentioned third and fourth edition of dungeons and dragons mm-hmm. they're really they're really gamified now you know there's there's rules for just about everything in them and <clears throat> well with fourth edition even I've uh, I've said this previously. It, it really, it doesn't give the GM much option for progressing the game beyond encounters that require skill rolls. Mm-hmm. So, really taking that, the player ingenuity out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, with the exception of using your skills intelligently. But, in my experience with that system, players don't improvise as much anymore. Mm-hmm. They don't. They don't swing from chandeliers and they don't kick over braziers. They mm-hmm. they use the you know the power cards that are set up in front of them, mm-hmm. and you see less of that in in game systems that don't have so many rules set up to create that kind of structured battlefield. I suppose you would say. Mm-hmm. So, from my experience with uh, with BRP and a few other systems that I've I've run that um, don't really have that kind of balance written into the system. Uh, I've usually had to just do mental adjustments in my head to in combat or in difficult situations to keep things difficult for players and keep Mm -hmm. the tension up with players while at the same time making sure that they're not going to be utterly annihilated by whatever happens next. Right. Yeah. And and I think that is the the tricky part. Um, I think as every, as long as everyone's sort of on the same page there and you kind of understand that, you know, TPKs happen, <laughs> right? Oh, and, um, you know, or there might be a session where it's just a walk in the park, you know, um, that the game through gameplay is the balancing mechanism. You, you, you know, it's the aggregate, it's the average uh, of 10 sessions or 20 sessions or what have you. Over time, if you can look back and go, well, there were as many harsh challenges as there were easy encounters then you know you, you've done a good job i think the, the more uh, you know modern systems um try and say well we're gonna we're gonna shrink that average from an entire campaign down into one session right you know so you go looking back on a single session you might go well the one encounter was pretty easy but then there was a really hard one so that was good you know yeah. um and they even in these new systems they even give you you know rubrics to go by to create those types of situations they exactly. give you experience point allocations to create easy encounters or difficult or hard right. encounters right. yeah challenge ratings and all that yeah 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 um in a lot of ways like as i'm thinking about it it occurs to me that you know with the modern systems the the uh, the honest for the balance falls on the gm in the older systems, it falls on the players. Right. It's up to the players to assess an encounter. Ooh, do we really want to, you know, jump into this right away? Whereas, say, you're playing fourth edition, and you know the GM puts out a battle mat and he says, "There's five kobolds over here." You know that the GM has set up this encounter, exactly. so you can just go ahead and charge in, and and it's all about the encounter itself. Right. You know, whereas in an older system, you're 
kind of thing. Do we want to do this at all? You know, and of course, the nice thing about that is that for the GM, he probably hasn't spent a whole lot of time setting up the encounter anyway. Of course, probably just jotting some notes, quick notes down, referencing where the stats are, and just good in to case. go. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So uh, that's interesting, uh, you know. And thinking about it, I can see why the shift occurred because, again, you've got the majority of people as players, maybe just want to show up for the game and you know see what the GM's got for them. Right, just kind of be led around a story. Mm -hmm, Exactly. So, yeah, that's... uh, And, you know, there's nothing wrong with being in that mindset. Mm -hmm. It's it's a perfectly valid option, and Mm -hmm. it's it's no less valid than, you know, expecting a a GM to accede to your every wishes and, Mm. you know, spend extra time fixing problems that you make when you decide to go off the rails completely <laughs> no i'm not bitter no <laughs> there's no way you're speaking from experience mm-hmm. no i'm not getting flustered because of past history of players not at all <laughs> vietnam style flashback <laughs> thousand yard stare right just don't mind me i'm gonna get quiet for about 20 minutes now <laughs> no it's no, I had, a, I had a lot of fun running 4th edition, and my players had a lot of fun being in it. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I, I have a lot more fun planning story encounters than I do statting out different types of monsters to try to fit together in yeah. combat encounters. Exactly, exactly. Because, yeah, at the end of the day, it, it's it's uh, more of a qualitative thing. Like, wouldn't it be cool if, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, first the first Rifts game I ever ran... Um, uh, it was just me and another player, and he was playing uh, what is sort of the the consensus among Rifts Cognoscenti, such as there are, is uh, that um, the Atlantean Undead Slayer is the most unbalanced player character option. Okay, it, it is like this just, you know, munchkined out um, class race combo. Okay. But since he was the only player, it didn't really matter. Mm. Right. Um me, meanwhile, I had the stats for this thing called the Splugorth Slaver, which is the image from the original uh, rule book. It's basically this sort of hovercraft with this sort of Cthuloid monster sitting in a, in a sludge bath with these scantily clad blind warrior women clinging to the side of it. It's very pulpy. Ah. And um, I had the stats for that thing, so of course I'm going to throw it at him. Of course. <laughs> now, you know, this is the sort of thing that, you know, really even a group of first level characters would have a hard time with you know i just throw it at him anyway just to see what happens and um of course he ran away Mm. you know uh rightfully so right and the thing's pursuing him and so we had a very tense uh chase sequence and uh you know this was 21 or more years ago so his memories are a little fuzzy but it did come down to a single dice roll where i think he was going to you know jump into a, a river you know um, at the bottom of a gorge and the thing was going to get like one last plasma bolt ah. shot at him and um, and so you know I rolled the dice out in the open and we're both looking as the d20s rolling and it comes up and it was like you know a miss or whatever you know he dodged it something to that effect anyway we were both just like oh my god like I was like rooting for him you know like <laughs> and I think maybe because I realized I was like oh I shouldn't have uh, <laughs> thrown this against him oh yes but uh it was like it was great you know and it was the sort of thing where it was like if if rifts had had any kind of challenge rating system mm-hmm. it would have been like a challenge rating 20 or something I would have been like well I shouldn't throw that against him just now, you know. No. So, so really the answer, I think, to how to balance an unbalanced system is uh, you don't. But that's mm. the fun of it. Right. You see. Uh, and, and sometimes you, you know, underestimate how powerful the things are and, and everyone dies. But other times you underestimate it and you have these amazing memories come out of it. So Definitely. Yeah. So, but uh, what about the other aspect of balancing? Oh, uh, balancing player enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Well, that, uh, <clears throat> like I said, that takes a lot more footwork, really. Uh, essentially, it, it all comes down in creating variety of play, I imagine. Uh, it does sort of dilute your game a little bit, especially if you're trying to focus on specifically an aspect of the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can have combat, or you can have players that enjoy combat, players that enjoy role playing, uh, those that like sneaking around, those that like going in the front. And 
I think the uh, the real way to sort of create balance is to sort of skew the balance in the first place just by establishing what you're planning on doing with your game. Mm. And yeah. <clears throat> instead of having character players create whatever kind of character they'd like to, uh, you give them a theme or an idea. So y this is where things like uh, Delta Green come from. Yeah. Or even, I'd say, like Cthulhu Invictus or mm. Miskatonic University. You you create a setting and it's got its only its own concept for its stories and then you sort of release that to the players and let them create characters within the realm that you're giving them yeah and that that tends to cut down a lot on one player doing something while everyone else stands around or all the other players doing something while one character has to stand around mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, most recently, I've I've had the, I've made this mistake. I tried to uh, I just finished my uh, BRP dinosaur poachers game last mm, night, no. and um, it seemed like a good idea at the time to give the character the players options to create every crew member in the in the ship. Uh -huh. So you know, one of the players is the pilot, uh, one is one of the gunners, one mm. is like the ship's doctor. Right, that would seem like a good idea. It would, and it works really well in television shows like, uh, like Firefly. <laughs> and <clears throat> when it comes down to the nitty-gritty of hunting dinosaurs or or just piloting a ship safely or going down into an abandoned underwater research facility, there are things that some players are going to be able to do, and there are things that others will not be able to do. I could see that, yeah. And perhaps, thinking back on it, I probably should have allowed, since, I was, since I'm running a game with only three players... I probably should have allowed them to create more than one character and give them the option to leave behind. Because mm -hmm. in shows like Firefly, a few characters do go out. You get you know, the Captain and Jane and uh, Zoe. And so that would be a good group for three players. And while that's happening, the other three players are having their own... Or the other three characters are having their own sort of situations. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of another option if you're playing with a smaller group is to have your players create... You know the kind of character that they'd like but also create characters that would mesh in well with a set of other characters mm -hmm. so you have the combat characters and you have the diplomatic characters or the support characters quote unquote mm -hmm. but yes last night it culminated in a um <clears throat> let's see a combat with a rampaging tyrannosaurus rex on in the amphitheater on the deck of a crashing dir dirigible so it was it was very epic and cinematic, and the characters had a, or the players had a good time envisioning everything. Yeah. But the doctor was so out of his league yeah. that he decided to try to climb the Tyrannosaurus Rex and try to stab it with syringes, <laughs> and he ended up getting a bad roll and yeah. was had his leg crushed as the creature lost its footing and collapsed on it. Oh dear. And that created a good role playing situation, but. After that and before that, he really didn't have very much to do. Yeah. So that's that, a... that can be tough when you when you've got a group, especially if there's like the one player whose character doesn't really fit in with everyone else. Right. It can be tough. Um, yeah. And speaking of, of player types, uh, and definitely on this on this uh, topic, mm. you know, I recommended a, a book called Hamlet's Hit Points by Robin D. Laws last week. So this week I'll recommend another one of his books that is probably his best, well, uh, his most well known. Uh, book it's called Robin's Laws of Good Gaming, mm. and it's uh, been out for mm, over ten years now, I think. And so, um, one of the things from that book that's kind of made its way into the sort of gaming, um, you know, collective unconscious is this idea of of typing your players. So, what type of player do you have? Mm. You know, and obviously you have to, you know, be gaming with that group enough to start to get an idea. Right. But he breaks it down, I think, into you know, around a half a dozen different types. And there's like, you know, the power gamer, the uh, the thespian, you know. Oh, um, right. And like the storyteller. Right. The... Exactly. Yeah. And there's yeah. like these quizzes you can take nowadays, <laughs> you know, where it's like, what type are you? you of know? course. Because on the internet, there's a quiz for everything. Of course there is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the, the basic idea there is, is a sound idea because the, you know, the, the concept is once you've kind of figured out and, you know, of course he says, 
rightfully so, everyone is multiple types. I mean, no one is just one type. Of course. But you, you kind of try and figure out why are you, what, what's the primary reason you're sitting in this chair? Yeah. You know, and once you do that, then you can try and uh, introduce elements into your campaign that will cater to that person, at least from time to time. So even if, you know, you are running a, a diplomatic game mm. uh, and you've got a power gamer uh, who has, you know, min-maxed his character to be this amazing uh, espionage agent, right. right? But then you've got this this thespian over here who, um, you know, just wants to uh, role-play through, you know, these, these uh, diplomatic right. encounters or whatever. You can kind of set it up in a way so that sometimes you you do have these pure role-playing encounters like maybe at a at a diplomatic ball where all the agents are sort of mixing and no one can you know throw down and you just have to be kind of exchanging witty remarks right but then like other times you know you go all mission impossible and you, you let, let him get dressed up in the black cat suits and you know rappel mm. down from skylights and the and the power gamer can really shine at that point you know so you know i think when you have um a mismatched group, you know, despite your best intentions, right? Because it happens. It does. Um, you don't always have a, a wide selection of a pool of gamers to play pull from. Exactly, and and even if you're like, well, this is the this is the basic setup, there's still going to be a lot of, of room within that basic setup, unless it's the super hyper focused right. concept. Uh, there's still going to be a lot of wiggle room for people to come up with with different ideas and so the best solution i found is just try and again that sort of aggregate thing where you know as long as at the end of the campaign you can look back and you go i think everyone had an equal amount of spotlight time at some time or another mm -hmm. even if there were sessions where you know joe or jane was sitting there with not a whole lot to do right i tried to make sure the next session i gave them something to do that would like either appeal to their character or appeal to their type yes you know so to me, that's that's how I address the you know balancing player fun issue. But yeah, the 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 first step, step zero, really is mm. pitch a, a concept that is going to narrow things down a little bit. Indeed. Yeah, because that's another that's another one I learned with rifts was because that's one where you've got at this point there's probably you know over a hundred different character classes. Oh, Jesus. You know what I mean? I mean, there's like there's like 80 books out for this this game, you know. So it, it hasn't gone through any uh, any revisions and editions or anything. Sadly, it's, no. It's still on edition, first edition. They put out they put out a uh, what they called the unlimited edition, uh, maybe five or six years ago. Uh huh. And eh, you know, it was a slight cleanup. It added some some elements that have been introduced into the the canon, you oh. know couple new character classes were made in core you know same same system same everything you know it's it's right. it's uh and that's the the number one complaint from anyone who enjoys the game is the mechanics themselves you know <laughs> and and you know every book is like trying to outdo the last book in terms of scope gear and scope <laughs> and you know uh it's just it's terrible and so you know you have to be selective you can't just be like all right well yeah just bring me your characters and we'll, we'll do something yeah, you know we'll, we'll work something out yeah exactly <laughs> yeah oh let me figure out how a, uh, a vehemently uh you know human supremacist is going to be running around with a wizard and a mutant uh, and then this guy uh who's in a, a 12 foot tall suit of power armor is going to be tagging along even though this is mostly going to be a you know underground exploration campaign so you know yeah no no you have to you have to you know narrow it down indeed yeah shall we move on to finding players indeed and we're already on a, a good step for that i think with just our step zero of mm -hmm creating an interesting setting that's cohesive that would interest players. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's assuming you have a pool of players to draw from. Of course, but you, have, you do have to have the idea first before you start reaching out to people. I absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you have to kind of know what you want to run. Indeed. Yeah, so that is that is uh, definitely the first step. Um, you know, I mentioned... I've mentioned a couple times that like my earliest games were just me and one other person. That is because I really could not find. I tried for like a year, mm. <laughs> you know. I I wasn't just like kind of 
you know, not really putting myself out there. I was definitely asking all my friends, trying to get people together, and just for whatever reason, demographically, there was only this one other person. Ah, uh, yes. And it, that kind of uh, carried on and uh, throughout like high school and into college, and I always had a very small group in those days. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, nowadays, it's kind of the opposite, where, you know... Um, you have to, you have to cull your players. I, I have to like actually be like, oh man, like this is getting too too many people at the table. What am I gonna do? You know, like yep. I've got you know like the steady group is five players, and there's like two or three more kind of in a close orbit, and then there's this much larger pool of people that I know either directly or tangentially who are gamers, and that's all down to um, uh, just basically social networking, you know, and Indeed. the and the meetup. Uh, Meetup.com was was a, a big, um, big one for me. Um, so that would be my my recommendation to anyone. You know, just you know, first first thing you want to do is know what kind of kind of game you want to run if you're going to run a game, right? Or what kind of game you want to join. Indeed. Secondly, go to the internet, see what you can find. Yes, I uh, let's see. I found my first gaming group in Santa Fe uh, through Craigslist, actually. Oh, okay, that which works. Was, yeah, which was a lucky find, apparently. Mm. Um, and then, yes, I think I found your game through Meetup. Mm-hmm. But uh, surprisingly, the one avenue that I or the one tool that I use all the time that I've never been able to find a game or players through is Obsidian Portal. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Actually, I think I had one person once solicit me uh, for an online game I was running mm. but it was you know it was just me and, and my two old friends so it was like yes eh, it's kind of a personal you know it's not, not like we're really recruiting like right uh, you know people we don't even know you know exactly um, but yeah that is that's funny actually because that's it's supposed to be set up to be this right you, hub you find games nearby and uh, no one's taking players <laughs> <laughs> yeah everyone's just using it as a wiki platform so. right I uh, my first uh, attempt at um, putting a group together with the internet was back in like 2003, and so this was right before, right when the whole social networking thing was starting, but before it became like really prevalent. Mm-hmm. And there was this, um, uh, I think it was called Access Denied. It was this um, website hmm. where you could put in, you know, your location, what systems you played, you know, so forth, and then just posted up there and then you could do searches and limit by you know geographical region and so on and so forth right and so i was coming off of a of about a two-year dry spell there where i hadn't done any gaming to speak of Mm. you know apart from the occasional one shot and i was just like you know i gotta put a group together i'm going crazy (laughs) so (laughs) and i had this i had these like very high-minded ideals about hey, you know, we're all part of the gamer community. You know, this is something we all share in common. So that's going to be like this this bridge that's going to bring us all together no matter, <laughs> <laughs> no matter how different we may be as people, you know. And I somehow just ended up with this amazingly perfect cross-section of like every gamer stereotype oh, you really? could think of, like one of each. Oh, dear. You know, like, like the big fat know-it-all and the creepy guy and the, the sort of uh, gregarious guy you'd never think was a gamer mm. and the, the sort of weird loner survivalist type and you know like um, it was it was just I don't know they were like it was a big group it was like five or six people um, but it just I, I like we did a character creation session and then I ran one session and then I was just like this isn't working for me, you know? And the funny thing is I kind of bowed out and they kept going and they, they actually, you know, were able to, to kind of keep their group going for some years afterwards, as far as I know. Interesting. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad they all, you know, were able to, um, click with each other. But to me, it was just, um, uh, too too many different personalities, you know. Yeah, uh, especially being in charge of corralling and yeah. you know massaging those personalities in order for them to get play a game together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the the know it all guy, I think, was happy to to take over as as the GM because of, of he knew course. everything. So, yeah, <laughs> you know. But um, also, I hadn't run in a while, so I was a little rusty. Oh yeah. But you know, uh, it was funny. But that definitely, um, you know, sort of put paid to my. You know my high-minded ideals, I guess. Of course. And uh, ever since then, I've I've sort of attempted to, you know, uh, kind of get to know people either before I start gaming with them or 
you know, if I have a good idea of who they are, like, because they come recommended by somebody, get to know them just outside of the gaming, you know, right. uh, environment, you know, because, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really one for, like, you know, convention gaming, but that's certainly another way to, to find, find some players. players. Yeah, absolutely. Just go to gaming cons, you know. Of course. Or uh, even gaming stores, I guess, if you have one in your town. Yeah. If you're, if you're fortunate enough to have a decent one in your town, I guess I should say. Decent operative word, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I just found out that the store I patronized for many years as a teenager uh, just recently closed down. Oh, no. And, um, yeah, I'm actually not that sad about it because it was an awful, awful place. Oh, well, then, hooray, the witch hooray! is dead. <laughs> but that, that's maybe a topic for another day is, is um, you know, our gaming store is still relevant. But anyway. anyway. Just places to buy Pokemon cards. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh dear. Yeah. Now so, we, we love gaming stores. Don't ever close. No, absolutely. Just be be good. Be be the good sort of gaming store. That's right. That's all we ask. Carry obscure editions of old role playing games and we'll love you forever. That's right. <laughs> oh dear. But yeah, um no, seriously though, I mean, uh, some gaming stores um they do run, you know, um certain game nights or whatever, you're, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, pick up games, um that can be a great way to meet people, for sure. Yeah. So yes, if you're if you're looking for players, uh, <laughs> meet up Craigslist. You know, occasionally tournament games. Mm-hmm. Just beat feet at your local gaming store. Mm-hmm. Reach out to friends. You know, just just try to get out there. Just don't be embarrassed that you play Dungeons and Dragons. Is I guess the first step. Yeah, uh, actually, I I um, gamed with some friends out in San Francisco who didn't play. Hmm. They were curious about it. Unfortunately, we weren't able to make a go of it as a group just because uh, one of them um, was just launching his career in, in film. Oh. And you know that sort of schedule you know, can be pretty brutal. Of so course. we just could never get, uh, you know, like there were only three of us and we could never like get a, a mutually agreeable night to meet on. <laughs> you yeah. know, just, oh no, Wednesday's bad for me. It was Thursday. No, Thursday's terrible. But, <laughs> but we did get a few games in and uh, it all came about because I, you know, posted, uh, you know, the stupid 20 questions meme on, on Facebook, you know, hmm. I posted my answers and one of them was like, what's your hobby? And so, you know, I said role-playing games and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, one of them was a former coworker of mine and, you know, his Facebook friend and, and he's like, oh, dude, you know, like, I've always wanted to try that, you know, and that, that can happen, you know, either online or in real life, you know, you just mention what your hobby is. It's surprising how many people either play, hmm. used to play, or have always wanted to play. Indeed. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a, it's, it's a funny hobby because it's, it's um, kind of impossible to tell if someone's into it. You know? Right. Uh, there's there isn't a lot of paraphernalia that goes with it. Right, you don't really. Most role players don't really walk around with you know d twenty dice cha- or uh, keychains or right exactly. Or, I don't know amulets of <laughs> Saren Ray or something. I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> they don't. They don't have a, a charcoal portrait of Gary Gygax hanging in their cubicle. You know. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas you know, if someone's into sports, they usually have some you know bumper sticker or poster up in in their work area or you know something yeah, like that got like a know. team jersey pinned up or something right or, or they they have a team jersey part of their wardrobe or they just talk about the game we that too i don't think we talk about our games enough yeah that's true yeah. i it's partly just because it's not a, a shared experience outside of the immediate group indeed I mean, you can't go up to somebody and be like hey did you see my D session last night like, man frankly no i didn't you should check it out <laughs> yeah, we rolled exactly. some mean d20s <laughs> got some natties yeah mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Although the rise of the of the whole actual play uh, podcast, um, is, yeah, you know, I think that's pretty cool because you can actually point people to you know a recording of your game and be like, check it out, you know. Yeah. And I think for uh, for the uninitiated, there's you know there's this concept out there that the only role playing game is Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. And I've had a lot of luck bringing in role players that had never you know rolled dice that weren't. D6s before, mm. um, just by saying, hey, we're, we're going to run a game of Call of Cthulhu. And they were intrigued by the fact that it was horror role-playing. Sure, yeah. So... I, I think at least half our group fits that description. Exactly. You know? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, talk about your games. Um, you know, talk to it, talk to your non-gamer friends. That's right. If they're not interested, they might know somebody who is. Indeed. Yeah. Or they um, might have another nerdy friend that they make fun of that plays role-playing games. Exactly. 
<laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I, I was talking to Jade, and you know, she just got into gaming like this year, mm. and through the fact that it was like a Lovecraftian RPG, like you were saying. Yeah. And uh, and so she's you know talked about it at her work, mm-hmm. and and so she gets a little bit of guff from some of the guys there, and they're like, oh, you're gonna go do your your D and D nerd thing today, <laughs> and she was saying like, I'm already enough of a snob that I'm like, please, it's not D and D. Oh yeah. Yep. Those those cretins are below us. <laughs> Probably the weirdest um, the weirdest method I've ever seen for for attracting new players was uh, when I was working downtown in San Francisco, and so I'd wait for the bus on Market Street. Uh, which is, you know, to the uninitiated, sort of the main thoroughfare downtown San Francisco and, and also the place you're most likely to see some really weird shit happening. Of course. And um, and so this particular day, there was a guy, actually like two or three guys, uh, they'd set up a card table on the sidewalk. Sidewalks are like a good 15 or 20 feet wide. Mm. So they'd set up a card table on the, on the sidewalk near the curb uh, with uh, some poster board out. One of them said like, Role play is the answer, and the other one was like, you know, something about D and D. But it was like very evangelical, you know. Oh my god! It, it was like they were out, you know, and but they were all wearing robes and masks, <laughs> <laughs> and they'd be out there like holding up the manuals, you know, like you know, come join us. And they'd actually run a game, like if someone came over, you know, they'd sit down and they'd play, you know, a half hour or whatever. Oh man! At this card table on on Market Street, <laughs> it That's... was amazing. So, so don't be afraid to evangelize, apparently. That's right. Get out there. Get out there with a good book. Go door, door to door, you know. Yes. Have you heard the good word about our Lord and Savior, Bahamut? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what are these rumors about satanic RPGs? Yeah. <laughs> They're actually completely true. <laughs> That's right. We're coming to your doors and converting you now. Ah. <laughs> uh, uh, Let's see. Any other... Uh, any other good methods for well, I was, I was, new players? I was going to say you can go out with a bullhorn, but I think the evangelizing is much better than that. Yeah, it's even more effective. Yeah. Definitely. Just make sure you have some literature to distribute. Of course. Yeah. Some you know free PDFs. <laughs> yeah, I, I once... Um, oh, actually, sort of the classic one that um, I guess you get sometimes, and this goes back to the gaming store thing, mm. is uh, at least once upon a time, gaming stores used to have cork boards where you could post notices mm. and uh again the one i frequented in san francisco which was gamescape um they had a cork board at that time and uh, uh <laughs> there was one time when i just was sort of cruising past and i stopped and i looked somebody had like a hand-painted sign with like a fire-breathing uh little cartoon dragon you know and and uh you know they're they just painted it, you know, like poster paints on, on some thick paper, and it was it was amazing, actually. I, unfortunately, I wasn't in a position to, to follow up on it because we were just getting ready to move. Oh. But uh, it was, I took a picture of it because I was sort of like, wow, how often do you see that? So right. <laughs> so you can always, uh, if your local game store has a cork board, it's sort of old school and analog, but, you know, you can kind of go get a little deluxe. And uh, I know, like, uh, you know, sometimes there are people who just want to run a specific system like there's some companies that actually hire or well, hire people but take volunteers mm-hmm. to run their system as sort of promotion right uh and so they'll distribute these flyers with little tags at the bottom hmm. you know so you could post it at a game store and just be like you know if you're looking for you know old school D or if you're looking for this particular type of game you know take a take a tag and give me a call or whatever you know so. well that's a that's a wonderful idea any game companies listening i would gladly take your money to run your games <laughs> absolutely yes there are uh, there are a couple and and i they they escape me at the moment but i'll put them in the show notes um, but yeah so not not chaosium we can't sort of back charge them for <sighs> unfortunately three not. or four years of... you know they, <laughs> yeah <laughs> shameless promotion <laughs> oh. yeah i don't i don't think they they would have the resources for it anyway <laughs> probably not no. not if they're resorting to kickstarter for just about every one of their major releases exactly <laughs> we love you chaosium yes that's why we support you <laughs> Anyway. Uh, well, I think that uh, 
Is that about cover finding new players? I think so. And we can uh, move on to our our first ever voicemail question. Yeah. This is from an anonymous caller who did not leave his name. So I will... Uh, not say it. I will not say the name, but uh, I'll just remind you, if you do call in, folks, uh, and you want us to say your name uh, on the air, uh, be sure to mention it. Uh, and otherwise, your anonymity is safe with us. It may be because he signed off with Keep Podden, which, uh, you know, I would definitely want to remain anonymous if I said that as well. Yes, I... Um... That's, that does sound like the parting remark of a really uncomfortable caller. Just... Hey guys, uh, long time listener, first time caller here. I want to say that I love the show. Um, I just have a question for you. Hopefully you can uh, answer. Um, I've noticed that uh, when we're playing games, player immersion um, and you know, player buy-in seems to come a little more naturally to horror role-playing games. Um, for whatever reason, um, you know, could be any number of reasons. But uh, my question is, do you think this is uh, possible to get the same level of immersion from other genres, you know, say fantasy or pulp? Um, or is this, you know, kind of the horror role-playing effect kind of um, unique just to that genre itself? Uh, thanks a lot, and uh, keep on potting. Well, thank you for calling. Yes, thank you for that. Um, it's, it's a good question, actually. It's a very good question. Um, cause essentially I think there, you know, I mean, part of the, part of the issue is that as we discussed in our first episode, you want to encourage immersion of course. and buy-in when it comes to horror. And so you're going to work a little harder at it, hmm. um, just because otherwise your game's going to just fall completely flat. Right. Uh, a horror game without buy-in and immersion is basically a, a, a carnival haunted house. Indeed. Um, I guess the question, though, is can you work to create that level of buy-in and immersion with other genres? Indeed. Um, personally, I think the uh, the amount of buy-in that comes from horror games, just to sort of start off with a preamble here, yes, please. would be um, basically if you're talking horror gaming, you're probably speaking of some of the urban horror or modern-day Call of Cthulhu or even some of the older stuff. But at the same time, most, of, most horror gaming comes in setting-wise, from worlds that are very similar to our own, if not our own, with a little bit added on top. Mm. So for immersion, players sort of already know how to act in those kinds of games. They've got established perceptions about the world. They don't have to ask too many questions about how things work. There isn't as much wonder in the world itself because they're already very, fairly, fairly well established in that setting already when they come to the table and so it gives them more opportunity to immerse themselves in the strange things that you reveal mm -hmm. so i would say that if you really want to encourage uh, player buy-in in fantastical settings maybe don't go too fantastical if that makes sense mm -hmm. uh, try to stick with something a little bit more real world you know, relate it to something that your players might be familiar with if you're running a fantasy game uh, you know, talk about how the the world is similar to Lord of the Rings or The Princess Bride or Robin Hood or Gladiator or wherever you're trying to set it just to give players an idea of who they could be and how how people act towards each other and an idea of the social structures and the various aspects of everyday life so that when they're playing, they're not thinking about both a, how am I going to act in this setting? And B, what do I do in this new situation that the GM is giving me? Mm -hmm. They just focus on the plot that you're giving them rather than the story behind it. Right. Right. Like, I mean, we can all fill in the blanks uh, during, a, you know, your bog standard Call of Cthulhu exploring an old house right. scenario. We know what an old house looks like. Exactly. Obviously, the GM's going to want to be, you know, throwing out little, little carrots here, you know, uh, you know, pulling that picture up and, and making it even clearer in everyone's head. But everyone has that basic uh, structure in their mind. Right. You know, and all the GM has to do is just kind of pull it up a little bit and, and you know, mm -hmm. make it a little more uh, vibrant in your imagination. Whereas, yeah, I mean, if you're 
talking about some fantastical landscape, you really have to work hard to, to you know, to bring them in, to bring them in exactly. Right. Or even you know, uh, something set in the real world can still be uh, problematic. You know, like I was talking about with Pendragon, for example, mm. my extensive use of visual aids. Right. Because it's like, even though we all can picture knights and, you know, medieval courtiers and castles and all that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. um, it can be helpful to just, uh, you know, kind of punch that up with a visual aid to, again, you know, encourage the immersion. Because it's, you know, it's, you know, the past is a foreign country, as they say. And, exactly. And, you know, you have to, you know, there's, there's a big leap from imagining an old creepy old house mm-hmm. down the block to imagining being what it'd be like to actually be in a castle that's not a ruin, mm-hmm. you know, that's a, a vibrant living uh, location. Right. And when, when you say Pendragon or Knights of the Round Table, a lot of people can get very different perceptions on what that can be because Absolutely. there's been so many interpretations of it. Yeah. You could have a player at the table thinking about uh, like first night with Richard Gere and Sean Connery. That immediately came to my head as the one thing I would not want them to imagine. You know? See, what what came to my head was the uh, the Saturday morning cartoon Nights of the Round Table. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that the one that it was, it was one of those toy line uh, yeah. cartoons, right? It's Trying just a to half sell. hour commercial. Yeah, basically. So yeah. you could have a player thinking that, right? At the same time, instead of you know thinking Excalibur or yes. something that's very high fantasy. Exactly. Exactly. So, so. but yeah, there's a there's a maxim uh, from Ken Height where he basically, you know, in, in so many words, he says, "There's no point to ever running anything that's not set on the Earth because you can find a fantastical setting, you know, in the Earth, you know, any at some point in Earth's history, mm. and." With the additional advantage that people will have some level hmm. of of immersion and, and familiarity with that location, even if it's like, you know, pre Iron Age Britain, right. you can still at least imagine the British landscape. Mm-hmm. You know, when when you say, well, you're in the, you know, you're in the the woods or the wilds of of Cambria or what what have you. You know, people might have at least some concept of what that might look like. You right, know? and you can you can flush it out with things that, are, that people are always familiar with in in you know, earthly settings. Exactly. You can talk about forests and how you know the trees are losing their leaves and they're changing colors, and people automatically get that. Mm-hmm. But if you talk about being on the planet, I don't know, Glorbon, mm-hmm. and the, the sulfurous peaks of crystalline granite are yeah. erupting in these showers of, of acidic rain. Yeah, as, as you sail across the methane sea. What does liquid methane look like? I right. have no idea, right? You, you, you tend to get your, your players, their eyes start glazing over occasionally. <laughs> so it's definitely a good concept. However, I do like playing in space. Cthulhu yeah, well, yeah, I mean, that, that's a whole other, uh, mm. whole other ball of wax, I suppose. What... what I'm thinking about is you know that's that's fantasy mm. he also mentioned pulp uh, and that's an interesting counterpoint because you know your sort of default pulp era is contemporaneous to call of cthulhu yes and yet i would agree that there isn't that same level of immersion if you were playing a pulp game mm. versus playing a, an investigative horror game and i think that this might come down to and this applies to fantasy as well a different agenda for why you're playing that mm. which is that you're you're not there for it to be immersive you're there for it to be iconic right you know you want to play the square jawed you know two-fisted hero or you want to play the you know barbarian uh hero you know uh you you're you're there for the iconic experience and so you don't you know it doesn't matter as much if you're not immersed in the setting indeed yeah um, however, I think there's something to be said for uh, going for immersion, even in an iconic game experience. Absolutely. Yeah. I, th- I think a good way to create immersion in settings that are unfamiliar to players is to sort of maybe step away from the all-controlling GM standpoint and let them create a little bit of the content themselves. Mm. Yes. Um, so you don't you don't create an exhaustive setting and have them read a 300-page manual deciding where they come from. You you create something small that they work from and ask them questions about what they about where their characters come from yeah and let them make stuff up and there will be players that don't want to do that that want to have everything spelled out but mm-hmm. the ones that do sort of create at least a little bit of lore for themselves will probably really appreciate that and that'll get them immersed even more yeah that's absolutely true i remember the first time 
uh, I kind of turned it over to a player. He had like a halfling cleric mm. in this D and D game, and he asked me some question. Well, oh, you know what? What are the what? What would be the proper ritual for my character in this situation? And mm. I said, "You tell me." Yeah. And the look on his face was just like I had just given him like the best birthday present he'd ever <laughs> received. You know, <laughs> he was just like, "Wow!" You know, oh. like he thought it was so cool that he could actually have some say over what his character's religion was. You yeah. know. And I know there are some games that uh, actually encourage that, you know, where it's like where you're, you're building out your character's background and you're world building as you do so. Mm. I mean, Dungeon World's a bit like that. There's a game called Beyond the Wall that I believe works like that, where you, you work up your character's childhood and adolescence, and as you do so, you kind of fill in blanks about the game world. Interesting. Yeah, so I, I think it's a great approach because it, it really does, like you say, uh, when, you're, when you're dealing with something that's completely fantastical, you can have your your real world analogs up to a certain point, hmm. but if you if you're kind of creating this sort of gestalt uh, consciousness, you know, among all the players and everyone's kind of feeding into it, yeah, I think that's really the key to um, to creating that immersion. Definitely. Even with a even with a real world setting like a pulp setting, mm -hmm. where you have fantastical elements, mm. so it might be like, well, tell me a little bit about the secret society that your father was a member of. Yeah. You know, or uh, or what do you what do you know about the, you know, uh, League of Unstoppable Evil or whatever? You know? or, or even something really small. Like, what's that coffee shop you always go to with your group? Exactly. What's it, what's it like in there? What's the barista's name? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just, yeah, giving them a little bit of control over their world. And that kind of, it, it pays out, uh, I would say, substantially in a player appreciation. Big time. Yeah, and, and in a non-horror context, you can afford to do that. With horror, you want to kind of... Right. Keep those smoke and mirrors going as much as possible, so you don't, you know, you want to discourage uh, <laughs> too much of that. I mean, you know, feel free to for the the players to describe their characters' worlds, mm. and, and that's good because you, you know, they develop a connection to their character that way. But you don't want to go too nuts uh, in a horror. It's uh, true. Setting. But if you do, you can always make sure that that particular barista is a high priestess of, you know, Yogsathoth. Mm -hmm. A high barista. Indeed. Yes. If anyone still has questions after that, you can feel free to contact us with our information at the end. Yes, absolutely. Comment or voicemail are welcome. Absolutely. As always. And so I think that will wrap it up for this time. Definitely. I'm David Schimpf. I'm David Larkins. And thank you very much for listening. And just a reminder that if you'd like to be part of the Unabashed Gaming experience, please leave a comment at our blog, unabashedgaming.blogspot.com, or call our Lake Geneva, Wisconsin voicemail number, 262-729-9774. Leave us a question or comment or topic idea that you'd like to hear us talk about. We're also here to discuss any issues or problems you might be having in your game. We'd love to hear from you.